Welcome to Deep Color, the oral history project and podcast series that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. Each recording is casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Please help sustain this project by becoming an official patron through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. There are very reasonable donation tiers for supporters to choose from and feel good about. In doing this, you acknowledge the time and labor that goes into creating Deep Color and appreciate its value. You can also help by sharing Deep Color within your community and by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for helping to make these conversations about art and the creative process possible. This episode profiles Ashley Bickerton. Ashley makes sculpture, assemblages, and wall works that use a range of materials, including fabricated items, photographic and printed elements, painting, and found objects. Bickerton was a fixture in the New York City art scene during the 1980s before he relocated to Bali in the early 90s. His earlier work suggests elaborate packing crates or containers with heavy-duty wall mount systems and grips, their contents a mystery, while their exteriors are peppered with familiar corporate logos and his own autograph as motifs. Other works are cast in resin and resemble chunks of ocean, sometimes buttressed by steel pontoons, as if the object were a rescue raft or a time capsule prepared to float away. Answering these deliberate sculptures are his works that register like paintings, or things pretending to be paintings, as Bickerton says. They often have an arrangement of painted stones and rocks on the surface, or digitally manipulated scenes, figures, and portraits, all ripe with bombastic outlines, color, and paint. Other pictures are clearly landscapes that include objects adhered to the surface, things typically found washed up on the beach, like a torn rubber sandal, single-use plastics, and other colorful human-made detritus. Connecting these different bodies of work is Bickerton's interest in the grotesqueness of commodification and consumerism, an urge to defy expectations, and the desire to explore different ways of presenting meaning and ideas. This episode was recorded remotely. I was in Brooklyn, New York, which is the unceded land of the Lenape people. Ashley was at his home in Bali. We began the conversation talking about a personal manifesto he wrote, which listeners can find on his website. And the people who can do it, um, uh, you know, it's just I get, I get giddy, I get quivery and sort of mushy and silly when I'm around people who write just like you know, like angels. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't matter how wicked and and, and degenerated their souls are, on their characters, um, if they write, you know, beautiful prose, um, uh, you know, I'm just a quiver. Well, I could see it in your manifesto, and I, uh, uh, I wanted to share uh, a couple sentences that I pulled out of it and see if we could pick that the specific part apart. Um, here it goes. I love and detest my species in equal measure. Part of me wants to share joy and love and poetry, and part of me cannot understand the pointless rearranging of atoms in the face of billions of uncaring universes. That's something that resonated with me in this, this sort of duality that I think a lot of thinking human beings wrestle with over the course of the day. Um, 
Could you elaborate on that idea a little bit? This this sort of I think like that's been at the root of the root of everything yeah. since the beginning. Um, is that I've said it before. Hypocrisy is a fine philosophy. It's as fine as any. Um, you know, you don't have to be truthful. Um, we don't have to um, uh, follow the empirical scientific logic and come come to some point of reason. We're artists. It doesn't have to do any of that. Um, it just has to take its own course and make its own sense. Um, and so you can have two completely contradictory viewpoints, or five, and they can be baked in into the same idea. Um, and I, an artwork does not have to be about something. It can be about several things, many things. It can be about things that are completely in conflict with one another. And I believe that, you know, um, uh, and how those edges are played are what makes something interesting. Yes, it's absolutely true. I kind of detest my species, especially in mass. Individually, it's much easier to love us, piece by piece, unit by, unit by unit. But when you see somebody large, you know, sort of hordes of jabbering, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the jabbering idiocy that, you know, that, 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 um, uh, that emanates from, you know, collectives is really um, sometimes, for instance, yesterday I was um, watching reels on social media and uh, there was an Indonesian video of some rich Indonesian, oh, you have to be rich here, firing an AK-47 and reloading and reloading and reloading new magazines and firing and trying to look really sexy and smiling and being coquettish with the viewers. And all of these Indonesian guys, I guess, were all like, you know, raving and going, hebat, um, uh, uh, which means great, makaren, uh, which means wonderful. Um, you know, and I just, well, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Well, the point I'm making here is, I mean, the, the Indonesian fellows had a point, you know, I mean, I, I don't really have a foot to stand on telling them what to do, but um, that's the part of my species I'm not too caring for, is that sort of jabbering idiocy out there. And um, we've seen a lot of foolishness in the pandemic. We've seen um, a lot of conspiracy theories of rife. We've seen, you know, the um, uh, specter of, ugly specter of right-wing politics rear its head or across many um, uh, parts of the globe. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. You know, this, this notion of groupthink um, and what happens when a, a way of being or thinking or, or operating um, and, and not a great way, like, takes over a mass group of people is, uh, is concerning for sure. There's some, uh, I was just thinking about it. If you go to a museum and it's empty, your experience is art. If you go to a museum and it's full of people, your experience is people. That's very true. And, and, and that goes for surfing. It goes for hiking in the um, uh, back, back country. It goes for everything. You get around too many people and the experience will always be people. You know, it's like airports. You know, your experience, you're not flying. You're, you're being loaded onto a metal tube full of people. Yeah, you're in a crowd. And it's just large sort of needy mammals, you know, who take up space and burp and belch and, you know, and, and, and are all selfish and greedy and, and, and self-interested. And, um, uh, and you're one of them. And it's kind of vile. So that's the part, obviously. Not many people care for that, I suppose. But then when you sort of isolate individuals and their yearnings and their dreams, and um, it can become something much more beautiful. And that's the part you try to appeal to. So, I mean, that's the love and the hate, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I'm thinking of, a, I think it's an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote where he says, a, a, 
a sign of intelligence is being able to hold two opposing ideas at the same time and be able to walk in a straight line. And maybe we're talking about that in a way. Um, yes, absolutely. Let's pivot into uh, your artwork. And I sort of understand your work and you as an artist as sort of a stylistic wanderer. You work in a few different ways. You make objects that uh, present themselves in different materials and in different forms. You're not really typecast as a sculptor. You're not typecast as uh, someone that makes painting-like objects. You sort of are fluid, I, I feel, at least for me, is how I experience your work. Um, can you talk about the the value in not repeating yourself or not making the, the, the same type of artwork over and over again? Uh, I imagine there's a lot of learning in, in working in lots of different types in, in different of, ways. Yeah, one of the main driving forces is that um, uh, this real deep-seated need to let the internal motor be the defining force and not the external, I call it cultural drag. You know, lots of sequins and, you know, well, glitter and pizzazz and flash that creates a surface. Or it can be, you know, dull and monotone, bookish. The point is it's all sort of, um, but the motor is what you look at. Um, so when you copy an artist, you shouldn't be copying the look like they like this kind of colors with these kind of edges and these kind of shapes. You know, you actually need to be, copying the engine that's pushing them forward and uh, 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 and the um uh, and the, the internal map of the you know that's some um, direction finding locate that lodestar and you know try to figure out what where they're going and and how they're getting there yeah i i, I feel like i read somewhere you even mentioned i don't want to be clifford still making clifford still paintings forever um, and that's a sentiment that I can identify with because I know a lot of artists that just kind of like make the same thing over and over again. Yeah, they make a thing. Um, that, that really bothers me. Um, uh, I've, I've said this before, and, was, and it bears saying again, though, is that um, uh, I just felt, you know, I mean, I, I came out of a period where we studied basically, we studied the feet of conceptual art, minimalist art, pop art, um, and um, earth art, several other, you know, process art, you name it. And all of these great um, uh, efforts to um, break down what the language was, you know, um, uh, to create this new language, this new dynamic, essentially American language, um, cultural language. And then what is it? It's left to only refer to itself. What a waste. You know, it's a sort of self-referential ingrown hair follicle. It need, it, you know, I came along when they'd just been set up and they were basically still referring to themselves. So I thought they should be employed to, to, and, and they should be incorporated and synthesized and um, used to address the world. Isn't that what they're for? I mean, isn't that what artistic languages are for? Otherwise, it's just an academic form of um, onanism and pointless. They, they should be um, applied. And so I've, I've attempted to, to, to take all of those things and use them to, um, uh, to address the, the larger world. I, I go back to, look, poor Clifford Still. He's, he's, he's been the brunt of so many of my, of my tongue lashings. But I'm, prob <laughs> I'm probably going to end up loving him 
but I pick him. I pick him because he is so stylistically um, singular, so stylistically worked out. He's um, uh, you know he spent years perfecting um, the ever more nuanced logos for the corporation. Still, if you want, he made a kind of thing. It's just a, it's a pattern. Yeah, yeah. It's a fucking pattern, and it's a pattern that says Clifford Still that has a certain amount of. And I don't know why people just don't see it. It's as obvious as fucking... Okay, they're great patterns. They're sophisticated. They're intelligent. They're elegant. I know all of that. But they're still patterns. And they're patterns that people buy and trade like chips. And, um, you know, that a lot of my work has been just to call it exactly as I saw it. You know, the, the, these things are um, uh, trading chips on the circuit of art, you know, with a certain value and a certain um, uh, time, date, signature, signature attached to it. And, that, you know, that... that that's what's presaged a lot of my early work with electronic counters, prices, um, you know, logos, Susie, signatures all over them. It was basically mm-hmm. looking at this kind of stuff and seeing actually what the hell was going on there. Yeah. It, became, it became a thing. I feel like I understand why someone like Clifford Still or any, other, or any artist might um, find comfort or safety in and like the predictability of making some version of the same thing over and over again. And to be fair, it's an artist's right to do that. I'll also say that it's it's a narrow way of experiencing art making. We have or the any world, number, yeah. or the world. We have any number of materials in front of us, uh, any number of ways to create and make with with you know the form itself, yeah. the object itself, and to um, narrow it down to just one way in this in this like almost endless. Uh, uh, a list of potential opportunity uh, just seems predictable in a way, or um, I don't then know, again, not as exciting then, for me. But then again, in the in in, in the um, uh, seemingly infinite cacophony of voices and noises out there in the world, you know, maybe that singularity is refreshing. Maybe we need to ground ourselves, you know, again, you know, with with that kind of lodestar. To, to you know to 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 fix a point, a point of reference. So you know I'm well aware. Again, I, I suppose we go back to have, holding two views at once. Yeah, yeah. So that you can have both view. You can have both views. Although I wonder, you know, if Clifford still had a a bad breakup, or if Trump got elected president, how would he bitch about it? Yeah, I mean we're we're responding to uh, the world around us typically, um, or a lot of artists are. So. Uh, that always is playing effect. I suppose for the guy like Clifford Still, maybe the paintings just get darker, more turgid. Yeah, the color changes or something. Um, well, I suppose, you know, I mean, again, it's one of my favorite quotes ever is Andy Warhol's um, Everything is How You Look at It. And I can't get away from it. That, that sort of governs everything. Yeah, we bring ourselves to these things for sure. Um, I wondered if I could try and give a like a brief overview of the different ways that you work and and you you add in and help me if i miss anything yeah sure um you know you you make objects that we could call sculpture we you make objects that are painting like or uh, i think i've even heard you refer to them as things that are pretending to be paintings but you uh uh you make works that get installed on a wall that are crates or packages that are sometimes decored in logos. You mentioned logos and signatures earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, You make 
wall works that, um, and they, things are always sort of popping off the wall. There's, there's a relief to them. There's a dimension to them that are sort of versions of stone walls that are painted colorfully, um, and have outlines and space. They almost look like maps at a certain point. Sometimes there's text added to them. You make things called that I think you refer to as floatsum. Uh, works where they're they register as paintings they're almost like landscapes but there's a lot of sculptural addition uh debris you find on the beach or mm. around you sort of these collage elements uh you make these ocean chunk series that are like uh cast resin uh you know squares or blocks that uh look like frozen pieces of ocean uh sometimes they have pontoons on them as like a life raft or as uh, some sort of floating device. Well, as you're describing it now, yeah. the picture I'm getting is that I've, I've crossed so many of my own Rubicons and broken so many of my own rules that I seem to stand for nothing. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a, there's, a connect, there's a connective tissue through all these things. Is there a through line for all these different things that I just described for you? There have been. I, you know, I've set myself rules and parameters at various stages. Up until 1988, everything I ever did, no matter what it looked like, was actually addressing painting. Oh, okay. You know, the coming off the wall, um, uh, all, all those rock wall pieces you were de describing, um, you know, um, they were basically a piece of colored wall to fill a space on a wall with color and meaning. So what's more obvious than a piece of colored wall? So there were snap-on walls, there were allegorical walls. Indirectly addressing painting, the signatures all over Susie written all over them. That was the artist's signature. So it's like Susie, New York City, nineteen eighty six, nineteen eighty seven, and in the sense that um, uh, yeah, Picasso, Paris, nineteen fourteen has a certain resonance and cachet. It's it's the signature of the artist's um, the brand, if you will, um, the, the the time and place it was made. And so I was riffing on all of that kind of stuff. So it was until 88 that um, everything I did was actually addressing what a painting is mm. um, without actually making a painting. Is it fair to, like, there's part of me that wonders if you're, you're intentionally sort of trying to defy the viewer's expectation. You know, you mentioned I wanted, you know, making these paintings or referencing paintings that are making a painting, but it's not actually a painting. Um, is there any piece of you that's trying to keep viewers or even yourself the second uh, guess, guessing yourself get uh, like uh, on your toes as to what this actually is or, or how it could land um, I'm working on a new series of paintings right now and um, I, I really wanted to make real paintings for the first time in my life and I realized that as soon as I touch the size of them I'm dealing with the object again mm -hmm. and I kept thinking like but I've never dealt purely in image and I must be disciplined and try to stick there. Well, just yesterday we painted the sides fluorescent orange. I can't help myself. Um, I'm just, I can't make a picture. It's just not interesting to me because the picture's on a structure and that structure's in the world. And so that's the way my mind will always go. It, it will always default to these sort of questionings, um, to, to, to this kind of thing. Um, and I'm never happy for anything to be anything the idea that I would make a painting, um, I would kill myself. The idea that I would make a sculpt, I mean, I have made kind of things that are like paintings on canvas, but I've kind of got there like by walking backwards, sweeping behind me, in front of me, whatever. 
Um, you know, it's just, I, I've kind of backed my way in. I, I couldn't just sit down and do a painting or a sculpture. It would just, it's just not in the wiring. Yeah. It's yeah. got to be somehow something else or something. seems like weight is a, is a thing for your work. Things feel like they have a weight to them. Uh, even the things that have some sort of pictorial centerpiece, whether it's figurative or landscape-based, have these pretty incredible framing systems around them um, that seem so important. Yeah, I think you might be referring to like that, that series I did, the Blue, Blue Man series. Yeah. Uh, that kind of, that, that period. Um, Got to remember that those paintings, the paintings themselves weren't important. Yeah, sure, they were kind of attractive and filled with content and sexuality and wanderlust and and yearning and all of this stuff. But then again, that's because that's the content of paintings. So I stuck that all in. Uh, is it meant, you know, should it be pretty? Of course it should be pretty. Should it be alluring? Of course it should be alluring. It should be all of those things. I should just throw the lot of them at you. And therefore you have a painting. And now painting needs a proscenium arch. It needs a frame. Well, then we need a loud one because it has to be proclamatory. It has to proclaim loudly the content of whatever the hell I'm throwing at you. So these things were parodies of paintings in every sense. And they're parodies specifically of, um, uh, what, not of Gauguin, but of the fact that people kept referring to me as Gauguin. Hmm. And so I wanted to just make these sort of idiotic bloody things about um, uh, this blue man character who some people thought was autobiographical. He wasn't autobiographical and he wasn't not autobiographical. He was just, you know, an, an I- I- idiot white guy lost in the... Um, uh, I- I- exotics of the tropics or the third world, um, uh, you know, and, um, uh, blundered out of the t- 20th century and was now adrift in the 21st with a whole load of where, where, where so much code switching had gone on, he was completely baffled and flummoxed by it all. And um, yet he was holding on to his sort of dreams of, you know, dusky maidens, um, uh, fecundity, proliferation of his genetic legacy. Uh, you know, we've been sort of wandering in and out of talking about ideas and how ideas manifest in the work or even just in a conversation like this. And I, I tend to think that ideas are not like you don't get them. This, this, the, 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 this thing that people often ask is like, where did you get that idea? And I tend to think it's more like, where did you find that idea? Because getting the idea as if it, it sort of suggests that they're like lined up on a shelf or something, you just sort of can select one. Um, whereas finding an idea at least applies more to how I think working as an artist where they're born out of experience, they're born out of observation, they come to me slowly. Uh, that's my setup to ask you where you find your ideas or where your ideas yeah. um, you come put from. Your, you, you put your best outfits together when you're doing your laundry. When you don't have all your A game in place, when you just got the bits and leftovers, then you improvise and suddenly something comes up and suddenly something magic can come up, or at least you can see a sliver of it, and that's enough, and you run with it. Um, I don't know. Um, like right now, I'm wondering, what the hell am I going to do next? Yeah, my hands are kind of failing me at this point, so I'm limited now to the kind of art that can be dreamed up conceptually, and so, and I've got something I'm working on right now, but what do I do after that? I have no ideas, but then it's always come. Yeah. There's always been something there, um, but it always seems at, at that point when you're trying to imagine what you're going to do next, the possibilities seem like you know, an arid wasteland bereft of any sort of um, uh, shape or form being conjured up in your mind. 
you know, some of the words get thrown around in, in texts about your work in terms of the content or some of the ideas in your work are consumerism, commodification, uh, maybe even corruption I've seen listed. Um, that was pre-88. There was a show that was curated, I think, um, uh, there were two shows. One was a show at the um, uh, Tate Mod- Modern, yeah, Tate Modern, called Pop Life. Mm-hmm. The original title was sold out. Two of the big marquee-named artists objected vociferously to this. People who sell enormously well, by the way. Um, people and artists I actually like, but they objected. I actually thought the title was great. Uh, sold out. <laughs> I'm an artist who actually liked the term. I, I never liked the term neo geo much. I thought it was kind of silly. But then mm-hmm. again, which artists have ever liked the um, uh, the group they're lumped into? Yeah, the 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 the, the, the glib the, the glib sort of cat, catchphrases that uh, yeah. you know pop cubism. You know, well, minimal. Um, no, no artists have ever liked any of those um, kind of labels. But I always liked the one commodity art because, well, I was definitely, I was definitely addressing that. I was definitely talking about it. And um, uh, you know, I had a jaundiced eye. Um, uh, and and uh, and a certain humor about it all. The other thing that I think about uh, with your work is the sense of anthropology in it. This evidence of people and culture, um, and that manifests itself for me in the cast footprints in some of the work, um, in the refuse of people that perhaps you're collecting on the beach and, and using as gesture in some of your works. Am I reaching on thinking about the anthropology of your work? No, it, it of... goes into the figurative work too. I mean, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. you know, there's been sort of like, you know, I, I've looked, uh, you know, I, I, I've drank deeply from the toxic Tahitian well that uh, Gauguin left behind. Uh, you know, studied very carefully, you know, and read Levi Strauss and sort of um, put a lot of thoughts together along those lines and um, um, and read Malinowski and, and, and Margaret Mead and um, realized that people study people they want to screw. There's a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but um, again, it also goes back to my father's work. My father um, um, is technically an anthropological linguist. He, a lot of his work was the study of, you know, of um, uh, proto-hominids and voice box development and communication development and even, you know, even animal communications and how, um, you know, through pidgin languages, through creole languages, um, uh, that would include child language acquisition, which would include evolution. You know, so, um, uh, you know, evolutionary linguistics would be part of it. So all of that stuff was like deeply fascinating to me growing up. And I was sort of obsessed with them. Uh, early human development. So that has taken its course through the work. So when the work gets more mystical, like when in, in my mitochondrial Eve paintings, um, uh, which were the Earth Mothers, um, mitochondrial Eve being the um, uh, singular mother of us all, if, if, if we trace back our, D- our, our, our mitochondrial DNA um, of every human being alive, we were bottlenecked about ni- possibly 90,000 to 150,000 years ago at um, uh, a place in um, sub-Saharan Africa, in sub-Saharan East Africa, where the human population boiled down to about 30,000 individuals. And um, uh, we can trace every human being's DNA to this one human um, being who is the mother pretty much, of, well, of every single being. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I thought that was like so much more fantastic than all the mythology about the Virgin Mary. And so um, uh, I became obsessed with the Madonna 
figure, um, but but from 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 an atheistic point of view, from a scientific point of view, and so I kind of kept painting this one figure. Um, so yes, so anthropology and that um, has, has manifested itself in 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 that in the Blue Man paintings and in the sort of footprints and the detritus. Mm -hmm. So it, it comes up in all of, in different ways. So it's it's manifested itself scientifically. It's manifested itself as you know taxonomy. It's manifested itself spiritually, mystically, um, and as satire. Yeah, that uh, that's well said. I imagine it, it is also born out of your own lived experience as someone who's lived in a few different places. Um, and I know you've used this term cultural dislocation before. I feel like it all connects to living in these different locales. I like code switching. Code switching? Yeah, there you go. Slippages of meaning, C cultural drag. It's sort of an elaborate theater of of codes and meanings and, and um, you know, it's always multifaceted and uh, different edges going in different directions and everything is stepping and morphing at the same time. And then you try to operate and all that. It's kind of... Yeah, it's in the work. It's in the work. Let's talk about uh, the physicality of making art and of surfing. You're, an, you're, you're a longtime surfer and how that's been interrupted with your diagnosis of ALS and how you've had to adjust in big and small ways, both physically and spiritually. And how, um, you know, we were talking about it before we started recording about how one week is, can be radically different than the next. Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience and um, maybe how it's shaped some of your priorities over, over the past year or two? Well, first off, I'll say that um, uh, I've made it uh, my life's mission to never do surf art. I find it utterly bewilderingly bereft of any sort of um, uh, relevance to anything that holds any kind of meaning. Uh, in the I mean, I, I think it's as, as idiotic as imagine golf art. Now, the thing is, uh, has surfing entered my work 100%? It's mm -hmm. everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, and, and, um, the thing, I mean, I've been interviewed about surfing before and the thing that I will always answer is that, um, and they ask me what I like about surfing. Um, well, besides having devoted my whole life to, you know, tube hunting, riding in the tube, that was sort of, uh, my, my passion. The real draw in the end is the sort of sitting there bobbing in the water, staring into the void, looking into nothingness staring at that empty horizon. That really is sort of the joy to me. I've been out there surfing in a couple of nimrods on either side of me, like hooting and hollering and yelling back and forth across me, you know, like as if I'm not there. And I've, um, uh, and I, I've admonished them, you know, s s severely. And said, like, you know, can you guys like STFU? You know, this is like, you know, this, this is my church, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have a God. I don't have a place of worship. This is it. So, you know, can you have some respect? Mm -hmm. um, probably not in such nice terms, but. Yeah, that's a very diplomatic way of putting it right there. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, and, and that's sort of important is that to me, there is a sort of um, uh, a certainly a mystical component, a spiritual component, and a sort of magical component. Um, the idea of people, um, you know, jumping around, thrashing around in the brine on a plastic toy, 
jumping and whooping is of no interest to me. Never was. Um, that's not my. That's not my um, um, interest in surfing. It was always something to do with the edge of things. To, to line up and arrange themselves along the you know the fringes of these coral reefs, and to create these perfect symmetrical um, you know cylinders in relationship to, to to various bathymetry, and then for you to sort of sit there and the, the fishing aspect of playing and waiting and finding and hunting, all of that stuff was what really kind of kept me sort of in the game. Did I stay in the game too long? Probably. You know I was. You know, still well into it um, when, when when this disease hit. Um, but when I realized I couldn't surf anymore, I was like, remarkably, you know, um, uh, peaceful un, about uh, it. Maybe yeah, yeah, unemotional and um, uh, accepting of it. Um, it was just sort of like, okay, did that. It was great. It was fine. Yeah. Now it's a healthy I'm at, attitude. Well, now I'm at another point where um. Uh, my hands are beginning to go. I spent mm -hmm. today trying to paint something and it was really a struggle, you know, like hands shaking and twiggling and, you know, you're trying to fight. And, and, and I mean, I've, I've spent a lifetime with really re remarkably dexterous and controlled hands. Um, you know, it's been, it's been a fun thing to have uh, hands that could do things, you know, clever monkey hands. And the best um, tools we have. And to and, and 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 to have ones that you you know that 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 have developed skill sets and it's it's nice, and I don't I don't have that. And um, I was just thinking, you know, and I've been thinking, lose the surfing, it's one thing. Yeah, yeah, great. So I've done that. Maybe I wasted too much time on it. I could have gone to a lot of places I didn't go to because I was so busy going to places where there was surf. Uh, but uh, the thought of losing the art, it's unconscionable. I can't mm -hmm. deal with it. Mm -hmm. um uh, you know i i will find i will have to find a way somehow some some somehow just um try to chart a course now i'm actually kind of lucky in a certain way um i had conversation with two 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 friends of mine um while i was in new york who both very well known artists one would be bryce martin the other one would be john curran and um we were talking about disease and i was thinking thinking and then telling them that like in your case if you got this disease you're fucked because so much of the work is their hand yeah, it, it, yeah. it's 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 it, it, it's they lose that and, and and you know and um uh sure they've both got very powerful and um uh minds with very rich interior landscapes there's no, no doubt about that um they're artists i admire enormously but um but 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 but, but the voice is the hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the touch. And um, only, I'd say, half my work is that. Um, I'm not purely conceptual at all. You know, I, the, the, you, you were going to say, and we'll talk about it later, is the physicality. There is always that. But, but half of it is sort of mentally driven, conceptually driven. You know, it comes mm -hmm. out of computers and computer programs. So, um, so at least I've got that open, and um, there, there will always be a way, but I... I I think I've got to just go till the end. At first, I was going to do this last show at Lehman Maupin and um, uh, come back and happily maybe write my memoirs and rotten, rotten up my hill here in Bali and South Bali, overlooking the sea in the in the trade winds and hmm, fade away and leave the planet, or at least ride it out until it became intolerable, and then 
you know, take the fast train off. That had been my plan. Uh, but I think Larry stepped into the picture and ruined everything. <laughs> Larry as in Larry Gargosian, to be clear. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I suddenly don't have that option now. Suddenly I'm going to be like kicking and fussing all the way to the grave. Um, you know, with no, with, with no peace, no, no, no sort of languorous, you know, um, uh, reflecting on, you know, on life as I sort of, um, uh, you know, as I, as, uh, as my faculties fade and I lose, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I, I lose some uh, agency over my parts. Um, there is now going to be, you know, um, uh, a hell bent full wankers charge to the fucking precipice. <laughs> well, I, I'm wondering. And I'm exhausted. What, yeah. Just for a little bit more context for the listener, you know, yeah. last month, uh, uh, Gagosian gallery, uh, picked you up and is now representing you. Yeah. And, and now as you described how that kind of came, um, and sort of interrupted your plan to kind of, you know, look, look out to the ocean, uh, staring to that void, so to speak. Is that a welcome interruption? Is it, is it a, is it a new driver for you to kind of like figure out a, a new way to realize your ideas and make your stuff? You know, I've been having a bit of a comeback over the last several years. Um, mm -hmm. And, but it wasn't by accident, and I never thought it was. Um, um, my life tends to be very commensurate with whatever relationship I'm in. I, I, I suffer terribly in bad relationships. My work suffers terribly. I, you know, I go off the handle. I get drunk. I lose the plot. I make crappy art. And then when I'm in a good, stable, steady situation, everything becomes focused. Well, for the last decade plus, I've been with... Um, uh, you know, my partner, my wife, my everything, Cherry, who is perfect foil and complement in every way. We're, you know, all my weak spots, she is strong and hopefully vice versa. And we're, as a team, we're quite formidable. So there's been, and, um, uh, and I put a lot of um, uh, the mess of my life behind. And so there's been, since then, there's been a steady plod towards this point. So the fact that I ended up with Larry isn't isn't a surprise um you know it's kind of we were heading this way but then it is a surprise because you never know if it's ever going to freaking happen mm -hmm. and if mm -hmm. it's not going to be him will it be you know you know and so um one thing i was very pleased there was so, so many people said to me like about time it wasn't like what the fuck are you doing there or why do you pick right. you up it was sort of right. like about time i heard that a lot of people from a lot of people including artists in the gallery like god about time now, the thing is, because of um, this slow, steady build I talked about since I've been with Cherry, um, this focus, this, uh, the, the, the teamwork, um, I kind of knew that something was going to give, that, that I was going to get my career back on, you know, because I've had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of them my fault. You know, I'm kind of like a bit, as Alison Gagaris once said, him and his ridiculous career choices. Curators seem to be scared of me because... Um, and can't get a consensus. Like um, I was told by one person that they're all sort of watching each other, waiting for somebody else to make the first step. Hmm. But you know, still no no museum shows at, at all. Not even a little fucking Kunsthal. Nothing. Um, you know, maybe because the work is just not. It hasn't sort of fit a moment or something or other. I don't know. Do, do you think it has to do with that sort of stylistic wandering we talked about earlier? Yeah, I'm not. A, I, I don't represent a, a thing that's handy to curators. Curators speak to 
curators essentially their main audience are the curators sure yeah, they like talking to themselves um yeah it's one big fucking bukkake circle always has been <laughs> um but um yeah, yeah i mean it's it's like market darlings and then curatorial darlings you know institutional darlings of certain types you know who is who is that like yeah richter yeah. pretty much yeah. nobody you know like richter and Kiefer maybe yeah and it shifts around too like like it seems like it comes in cycles that people are in fashion and they're out and um you know the market is a sort of a Oh, fickle, yeah. strange moss monster in itself. You know, while we're talking about the market, and I wondered if I could t- tap into your wisdom. I- I've read in other interviews you talk about the pace of one's art career and making sure it's <laughs> moving at the right pace. I wonder if we could could peel back some layers on that sort of ethos. Yeah, I know I've said it before, and it's got to be the worst worst backhanded compliment I paid to my friend Chris Christopher Wool. Yeah, I've said in I've described him as in a way the he moves at the ideal pace for the market. The development is just enough, just slow enough and just fast enough. It keeps interest, but it doesn't alienate or scare people. And if you're shape shifting, you know, like um, uh, you know, mercurial, you know, um, uh, they they can't hold focus. You're gone. If you're and if you hold too long, like a Peter Halley say, um. Yeah, you got to. You, then you got to go through a big doldrum period of a decade or two or three, and then wait for it all to cycle around again. But if you're like Chris, moved in the perfect speed, you know, not to quite alienate, but just keeping that edge of heroin chic, of urban heroin chic, and um, and, and, and 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 that evolutionary pace, so it just move. Yeah, there's like a slight confrontation to. No, it to, sounds like a backhanded compliment, but there there is admiration, you know, in in my voice too. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Is, let's uh, let's imagine a, a a young artist that's maybe getting some traction um, in one of the the art hubs uh, around the globe. Uh, what advice would you offer in terms of pacing for them? Are, do you are do you recommend any sort of strategy or entrepreneurialism or or is it more just like wandering and let it come, let it come as it is, and and, and responding to it? There was an artist who came to me for advice, and the gallery that she was wanting to pick her up was, I just run afoul of propriety along those lines, and um, uh, you know, and um, she was seeking sort of like advice, like you know, like what to do because that gallery wanted to show her and yet so here she is you know um uh you know black woman artist who's going to be you know who's suddenly going to be you know my my compromising myself am i ruining my downline trajectory am i sending the wrong wrong signals this that the other but i basically what i told her was look do it i don't think he's a racist i think he's a clown self-absorbed clown who grew up you know in you know in a you know in a, in, in a gated privileged community and um just doesn't have the, you know, um, uh, the antenna to divine the shape of the world around him and thinks he's being fucking witty. Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, you're referring to the gallerist. Yeah. yeah. I said, Who, what, what other offers have you got? And they said, um, um, you know, and they told me, I said, okay, that's your best offer then. So go with it. But remember, they're not your friends. Mm-hmm. Now, to be clear, some galleries are. Mm-hmm. 
and my friend Jordan Wolfson will always say, they're not your friends, they're not your friends. I, I, I will backtrack on that and say some of them have been. And, you know, I've been actually good friends with some. And some I've loved. You know, I loved Ileana, um, Son of Bend. Um, you know, I've, I've loved some people I've worked with and um, others not so much. But, um, but basically, before you even go into it, it's a business arrangement. They're not your friends. Uh, be prepared to throw them at any time. Remember, they work for you. You don't work for them. Do not let them act like that. They all, they all do. You know, um, they're technically working for you. And um, how, I asked her, how long does it take to do a painting? She said, about two weeks. I said, good, then um, that's how long it takes you to do a painting. Do not let anybody fucking tell you otherwise. You yeah. know, and, uh, I, because when the art fairs start coming around, they start baying for blood. The howling starts like a month before each art fair or something. And there's an art fair every fucking month. And it builds up to a crescendo at the time, and um, you know, and they need, they need, and, and you feel like you ought to. And I made this mistake. I made this mistake with Lehman Maupin. Um, in the beginning, I didn't know any better. You know, I'd been a stupid stable artist. You know, a dinosaur from another era. You know, um, uh, who found himself adrift on the other side of the world, flapping in the wind. Yeah, you know, when I was sort of rescued by Rochelle, and I didn't know what to do. So when they de started demanding that I do, you know, art fairs, I sort of responded and. I'm somebody who likes to make a painting that's very much about many, many things, a complex of ideas that build up. That's you know, a, a, you know, a, a fucking anthill of, of of things built into it. I'm not somebody who just knocks off paintings. I can't do that. So they ha so I'd just done the Blue Man series, of which I only really had like 10, 12 paintings, and um, but they had me doing like you know, mid-size, small size, large size, silver version, gold version. You have the same fucking thing over and over, and um, uh, and once we've exhausted their client base selling this crap, this watered down crap, then of course you know um, uh, you know you get coughed up and spat out the other end. And then what happens? This happens to artists all the time. They you know these galleries come along and they you know they they pick eight artists and they throw them at the wall and two of them stick and then they run with it and bleed them dry. Don't back up the secondary market. And then when that when that's gone, then they've got eight, ten more they're throwing against the wall. Mm -hmm. This is a model a lot of dealers operate on, and um, uh, you know, as artists, we got to you know look after ourselves and look after each other. That's well said. I, I agree. So um, I said it takes you two weeks to make a painting. Then it takes you two weeks to make a painting. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise, uh, because what happens after that? After they bled you and you've exhausted yourself, and you're suddenly producing pale shadows of your own work. You know, sort of just just empty echoes of. In my case, you know, blue man Bickertons. And then the, the, the then their collector base loses interest and uh, they move on. And then you take a year, two, whatever, to regather yourself, and then you start focusing, I think start falling. And, and as artists, that happens. You get you get it back. You get your mojo back, you get your juices back, you get your focus back, and things start to happen. Yeah, that that, uh, that all connects to the, the pace that we were talking about, the sort of rapid pace. But the gallery doesn't see that, and they're, they're on to other things, and they're picking up the next 10 things to throw against the wall. And so you're mm -hmm. waving your arms going, hello, over here, you know, look, look what's going on here. And they have no idea what to do with it, and they don't know how to, you know. She's got much more of a consistent product than I do. So I told her to um, that you dictate the pace. You be ready to cut and run at any time. Do not let them, do not sign a fucking thing. Uh, be ready to cut and run, um, and and, and you're, you you you're the boss. You're in control. Do not mm. do, do do not do not cede an iota. 
of, of, of it over to these fuckers because they're all ghouls. Yeah, yeah. Hanging on to that artistic autonomy is important for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's get back into your work or, 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 or people's response to it. I'm wondering what, if, if anything, viewers overlook in your work or misread about your work. Um, when you can have a pretty crappy show and if you're riding on a wave where, where the focus is pulled on you, maybe you had a good last show, maybe there's a certain amount of heat built up and you can, you can produce any kind of crap and people read whatever they want into it. It's fucking genius. Or you can produce something that is utterly, you know, charged, electric to the core of, you know, of, you know, of, 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 fraught with, you know, meaning and intention and it's fucking epoch bending and all of that. And nobody will see it. It just echoes into nothingness. I've definitely seen both. Yeah, uh, some of my yeah. best work is e- e- echoed into nothingness. And you know it because years later you put the same thing and like people get it. I had a show in 2004, which, I, which was my father's favorite show ever while, I was, while he was alive. And um, on my Instagram, there's one painting I did. I'm a, a landscape with green sky with all this um, flotsam and pathogens and um, uh, diseases written in like 10 languages, nine languages, I don't remember. Um, but it's a very kind of thought out construction. Got nothing at the time, nothing. I didn't sell that piece. Because of um, uh, my issues with mortality of late, I've been doing a lot of investigation into um, uh, estate, you know, um, uh, posthumous, the posthumous life of the artist, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and, and, and as a result, I'm uh, tracing down, doing a lot of um, uh, sleuthing and investigation to find out where pieces are. And I found out it's in the collection of Francois Pinot, which is great and not, because it's great because it's a great collection. It's not great because he's sitting on it and he hasn't shown it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, but it's, um, but it's one of my, I consider it one of my more important pieces. They got nothing at the time. And I've had some crappy pieces get a lot of attention because the timing, if the focus is here, if it's a bunch of white dudes doing white cubes, you know, in white gallery spaces, you know, and it's 1973, you know, basically, you know, you fit that bill, you're you're in focus. Um, Times have changed, obviously. Um, So there's certain other things that are in focus now. And, And it's easy to get focus if, you know, certain things kind of line up. Well, I wouldn't say it's easy. It's never easy, even if everything's lined up for you. The people who get it, you know, it, it, it takes something. But um, but it's certainly easier. Yeah, it is. You know, this life is full of challenges. You know, you mentioned uh, a couple times mortality and thinking about that. Um, and I guess I wanted to, like, backtrack a little bit into, into um, when we were talking about your diagnosis of ALS and wondering if... if it has nudged you to reprioritize things in your life? And if so, what your priorities are right now? Is it making art? Is it being with family? I'm sure it's a combination of things, but if I pose that to you, what your what are your priorities right now? What comes to mind? I'm in a panic to make as much art as possible. Yeah. And I'm not very fast, so I never was. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm also interested in, we've done a lot of investigation of posthumous production. Um, because as I was saying, um, I was on a roll where I felt that, you know, things were picking up for me. Uh, I've been with Cherry for 10 years and things we've been building. And I was actually planning and looking forward to a great end run. 
I thought I'd have, and my parents both lived to be, my dad died at 92, my mom is still 92, soon to be 93. And um, so, um, you know, that's 30 years from, I thought I had another 30 years, essentially. So I thought I had a 30 years to have a, you know, a great end run, like Felita Barlow's having right now, like something, you know, like where, 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 you know, you could have lived this life where you were kind of always on the ragged edge, maybe flapping around the parameters, you know, in and out of people's consciousness. But, um, uh, but uh, to have this last three decades where it would all come home, you know, and I'd pull it all together. Then suddenly the diagnosis of ALS hit and um, uh, I don't get that opportunity. Um, you know, some people say, oh, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, I kind of do know what's going to happen. Um, there, there's no good, there, 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 there's no good exit with ALS. Um, you, you might get a little bit longer, you might get a little bit shorter. But um, at first, everything was focused on posthumous. And I was thinking, I want to do as much posthumous work as possible. And we found out, we were finding out about, you know, what, what the legitimacies are. We've met, we've had meetings with, um, uh, we've been graciously granted meetings with some very, very um, uh, influential players in, in, in the area from, um, for, 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 from, from top art lawyers to people like the Wildenstein Foundation. And so, I mean, um, uh, Cherry and I have learned an awful lot in a very short time all about that. You know, I've learned about um, uh, Dan Flavin's posthumous editions, the varying values. Um, I've learned about the estates of Rodin, um, uh, Giacometti and um, um, Brancusi, and you know, and how, and, and all the different factors that play into it, including the, including the Chinese market. Um, there's so many different factors about, you know, about how you can do, do posthumous work, how it can be more, you know, hold value more, or meaning more, and how, how some is disregarded. And as I was told during the um, meeting with the Wildenstein Foundation, some 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 of the more um, uh, cogent knowledge was um, uh, you know imparted, which was that uh, it really depends on who your audience is. It really depends on how you process it. Like Flavin's audience does not like any editions that are made posthumously. So if if um, uh, a neon installation, um, which is an edition of three or edition of five, say, and um, uh, three were done in the artist's lifetime. And uh, two are going to be made with exactly the with exactly the same specifications, and he wasn't even there for the first two installations, for the second yeah. two he was only there for the first one. But the point is, he's not here now, and it's going to be done. And some and some people have even saved the original light bulbs, so it's all legit. But they're worth a fraction of the ones that were made in his lifetime because that's his specific market. That's the audience makes the call, and his yeah. market don't like that. Mm. Um, it also. Um, as, as, my, as my friend um, Damien Hurst said, because um, he, he's been dealing with his legacy a lot too lately. Um, he's been doing a lot of um, estate stuff and looking into this. And he was a guy who first set me off on that sort of thing. He says, Ash, there's two fucking type of artists, right? You got to pick which one you are. One is like Henry Moore, who says, yeah, when you die, it's over. That's it. Everything stops right there. And then there's guys like, you know, Giacometti and stuff. You know, it's like, you know, okay, I make a edition. I already do. I already do the artist proof. Why you not make it three more? And we both decided we're definitely the Brancusi school. Is you know um uh, you know I and I immediately started thinking about Louis Bourgeois Spider. Now I've been corrected on this by um uh, my 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 contact at Gagosian happens to be Kara Vanderweg, who is one of the sort of great art historians in operation right 
And, and we actually met in the making of my book, which she was the person guiding it and doing all the historical research for my big book I did with other criteria years ago. Unfortunately, she's ended up as my liaison at Gagosian, which is really a, 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 an absolute blessing. Because yeah. she, 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 she's the real deal. And so um, I, I have this theory that, you know, like how many, how many spiders actually came into existence during Louis Bourgeois' life? Wasn't it just two? And I'll, I'll, I'll go back to this because um, uh, she might have the historic points about exactly when things were produced. But I have the artist's sort of sense and instinct. And I know that Louis Bourgeois has a certain sort of clumsy, ham-fisted style that the spiders did not have. The spiders had a lyrical elegance. So clearly there was other hands involved. Yeah, you can see that touch. Um, yeah, it just wasn't any of her work. You can see it in the first spiders, it had that kind of cloddishness that, that, that is signature to her work. Yeah, the, the, the spider on the cage, I forget the title. The, the wall-mounted spider that was just sold at auction. Yeah, have a kind of, it was slightly different. Now, the jury's still out which ones were made and which ones weren't in her lifetime, but um, if they weren't made and if many weren't made in her lifetime, the world is a better place for it. So I'm all for this posthumous production um, idea. I don't really care, especially when the artist really wants it to be. And in my case, I feel like I'm being denied 30 years of production. You know, because I've been denied sort of um, uh, that market darling status, because I've been denied sort of um, uh, you know, a lot of the, the central stage a lot and sort of kept, or sometimes by my own choice too, and sometimes not, um, it's sort of kept me hungry and kept me sort of um, kept my edge in a way. And I've seen peers, friends of mine, who I think are excellent artists, who have in some ways become flaccid, who in some way become repetitive. They've become, you know, shadows of themselves, you know, imitations of themselves, um, cutouts. Clifford Stills making Clifford Stills. <laughs> they're, they're pretty taut and muscular to, to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like we should take a second and 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 acknowledge Cherry as your wife and partner and collaborator. It sounds like she's really um, been an important sort of piece in your life and and studio practice. Yeah, like I said, I'm uh, I'm somebody who um uh, who will flourish in the right kind of situation. Um, I, I need to have domestic contentment, a certain bliss, a certain harmony, and then I can flourish in the studio in my mind places. But when I'm fraught, um, when things are fraught and um, uh, there's tension and um, um, all my life is in shambles, um, I tend to get um, uh, pulled down these rather wayward paths, uh, have my focus shifted. Um, uh, I can belch out a lot of a second-rate rubbish, um, uh, and, and, and imbibe too many things that I shouldn't imbibe. She help you pull out of those places? Um, yeah, I, I do it on my own. But 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 the thing is, I need I need I need that keel. Mm -hmm. You know, so so nobody says like you know, come here, you know, come hither to, to where the light is. Um, no, they just give me a keel, and I'm able to steer. Yeah, I can identify with that with my with my partner as well. I think uh, artists are lucky to have some force or person like that. In, I've in actually their lives. noticed that with a lot of artists, um, uh, they have and they need stable partnerships. I've noticed that mm -hmm. because we tend to go off the handle sometimes if we're not in a good one. Yeah, they help with all the balancing for sure. 
you know, I want to go back to your manifesto, and, and one of the things that you wrote in it was uh, sort of this homage to Nina Simone and Leonard Cohen as having given you something, um, and that in turn, you hope to do for others what they did for you. Uh, I wondered if you could elaborate on that. What did Nina Simone and Leonard Cohen offer to you? I'm trying to remember exactly my words, because it was something very specific. The gist of it was like they they touched something in you in your heart. They created a, a, a an emotional reaction. Uh, they spoke to you in some unknowing, undefinable way. I know I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but um, is it something like that? Yeah, um, they were able to shape and color and color and color certain chapters of my life of my life. Uh, so indelibly, so absolutely, that I can't think of a period, you know, um, and certain musicians are able to do that. You know, you think back to certain periods of your life, whether it be a breakup or a period you lived in this place with certain fond memories and um, the music, there's a soundtrack to it. But music can do that. And um, uh, you want art to be able to do that too. You don't want it just to be sterile and something that, you know, pretentious people do, you know, to say they did it at cocktail parties. You want it to be meaningful and alive and, you know, something that really enriches life. They, they get that kind of dynamic interaction with that um, colors and shapes their thinking process. In Indonesia, we have a word called, a word, taksu. There is no English equivalent. and It's a wonderful word, which is, um, uh, it's to be so transported by, you know, a cultural moment that the hair on the back of your neck essentially is standing up. There's goosebumps. There's, um, you know, this, this moment of absolute sort of cultural rapture of, of transportation is so ineffable that, uh, you know, that you're almost de delirious. It's almost religious. So, yeah, I'd, I want to be able to do that for people. Um, you know, um, the idea of like, you know, you, you know the, the gross sort of careerism and, um, you know, um, you know um, one well-known artist once asked Hearst, What's your five-year plan? And Damien wouldn't shut up about it for like a year. Like, can you fucking believe it? You fucking ask me my five-year plan. I don't have a fucking five-year fucking plan. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this was a very sort of driven artist who's been hot and on the scene. I won't mention the name, but um, you know, people actually think like that. And um, I mean, it's nice to figure out you want to get somewhere. But my feeling is that you want to get to somewhere because... Why do actors audition? Because they want to play parts. Because they want to be part of the game, the swing of things. They want to act. And part of the why, discourse. And that's why we want to. You know, we want platform. We want audibility. We want to. We wouldn't do it otherwise. Otherwise, it's just fucking onanism. It's just you know fucking self self indulgent um, nonsense. Um, so we, we do it because we we need to. Um, uh, you know, there are people who who are wired for this, to perform, to be, um, uh, you know, I, I, I've always said that we're performers in the sense that like, you know, we're, you know, like fucking cheap vaudevillians and um, Tin Pan Alley performers and, you know, with our hats and our canes and, um, and you know, it's a different thing. Okay, it involves hours, months of solitude. And then you come out for some two hour opening and get a few slaps on the back and then you're back in your cave again. But yeah, so so it is different. You don't you know you don't have Klieg lights and and and, and encores, but you, you 
you do you do have but 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 essentially it is the same thing we we do we we do it because we do it um and you read a book like nine street women i think that brought it home to a lot of people i think that book had a, a a profound effect on a lot of people, certainly that I know, and certainly on myself, because um, uh, it was a very clear and stark reminder of how different those times are to now, how very, very different they are, how the audience for all that work was the practitioners themselves, and pretty much nobody else, pretty much nobody else. They did it for each other, and they did it in spite of money or lack of money or, or, or anything like that. Um, uh, it was just the only accolades was, was you know, um, uh, the, the peer review, the um, uh, the response from your your peers, you know, whether they held you in esteem or not. Yeah, that and, community building, even if it's small. And I think that hit a lot of people because it's so different now. I mean, I'm, uh, so many people getting 1.5 million at auction, like you know, before they're 30. Yeah, the economic system around all this stuff is is a, is like I said earlier, a, a monster in itself. Sometimes I think it's important to separate being an artist from being an artist that's participating in the marketplace. I don't know. What do you think about that? I, my only feeling is that when I see something that I like, that I get behind and it does well, you know, the universe is in order. And when I mm-hmm. see something that I think is crap, um, I think is just unjustifiable. And it seems to be getting all the lords and accolades, both institutional publicly, financially, whatever. And it, you know, and then I think the universe is in disorder. The market now is we are seeing something very specific. I got to say two of my compatriots, two of my friends are the ones who are bloody responsible for all of this. It'd be Hearst and Coons really, who kind of set this monster in motion. Um, And now um, it's, and it's brought a lot of players into the game who really don't have an art history background or don't have a real love. I've heard it described by somebody who, somebody, now I'm going to paraphrase a friend of mine who put it really well, um, but they said, you know, they, they said, I'm, uh, I'm going to get, um, uh, you know, I, I'm going to get into art and I'm going to um, uh, invest in this and I'm going to get um, 80% paintings, but this sculpture, I'm going to get this percent women, this percent artists of color, this percent, dot, 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 and break it up like that. And um, they're really treating it like that. Mm-hmm. Like a portfolio. So we're nearing the end here. And this is a question I like to ask all people I speak with. When are you most satisfied as an artist? When are you most happiest? As, uh, and, and I'll just rebound off myself. I've become... When am I? Yeah, when. You know, oh. I, I, I can be incredibly cynical about my own work or about um, the art scene in which I participate. Uh, but there are moments of pure playfulness and joy during the making, uh, the time in the studio, um, sharing the work with friends and family. I mean, I think that's when I'm most satisfied. That's when I'm most happy as an artist. I want to put it to you. When are you most satisfied as an artist? That's easy. When you're dreaming the things up. Because an artwork is never more perfect than when it exists as a crystalline idea as a pure concept, untethered to physicality, untethered to the sort of um, uh, the crud and muck of our physical world. Mm. You know, um, uh, when I was leaning into this last show I did, you know, I was filled with such sort of anticipation and um, excitement and thrill. And the, the dreaming of these pieces to, to be, of course, when they come to life, you know, you're happy you've done them and there's a huge relief, but then there's just more stuff in the world. 
they just stuff you know there's stuff that's either stored or sold or not sold or you know or something or something and it just becomes stuff like there's people on an airplane yeah it's a difference between people when you can romanticize them long for them hold them you know in a certain aura in a certain light uh, and and people can be lovable and fantastic and special or they could just be a crowd of fucking farting belching greedy needy you know mammals so it's the same thing um and that's what happens to your artwork when it, so when it's you know um when it's just this pure idea it's just full of wonder and um uh, it's it's like a mother wondering about this child which she's only seen the um the scans and then Sometimes when the work is born, then it's just a zit, zit, zitty, obnoxious teenager who hates you. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's the difference. So yeah. it, it's that place of anticipation that I just love. Um, it, art is so pure when it hasn't yet gained physicality, when it's just sloshing around, or should I say soaring around your brain, your mind, like, you know, like this joyous little lark of, discursive melody that's malcolm lowry by the way okay <laughs> as i said that's beautifully said that's beautifully said a joyous little lack of discursive melody soaring yeah. in some remote summer of its own is from under the volcano ah, that's great can i ask what's ahead for you as an artist or what's on your horizon well, the thing is um, like i said larry sort of screwed up my my exit plan um you know he gave me this opportunity um uh, that um so I didn't get to come back to my, you know, my, my hilltop vista and, um, uh, you know, and, and gracefully fade away. And like I said, I'll be sort of um, uh, flapping and screaming till the end. But um, it also made me realize that while I was in New York, you know, I just thought that I would just ride it out while it was comfortable. And then this sounds dark, but yeah, um, uh, if it got unbearable, just, you know, find a way to exit. But while I was in New York, um, uh, you know, um, we, 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 we've uh, hooked up with some very, very good cutting-edge doctors um, on ALS at um, Columbia Presbyterian, and they were telling me all the possibilities. And, um, you know, you can go on for a long time if, it, if, if the disease doesn't actually physically claim you, like, you know, shut you down, shut down your, you know, functioning organs. You can actually go. I mean, you might be completely debilitated physically, but there's computers and ways to communicate and make things. Um, you know, I could be blinking into computers and, um, uh, and um, you know, d designing and making things. And so it made me wonder, how far do I want to ride this beast? And mm -hmm. it changed. It changed. Um, uh, you know, I mean, um, and now, um, as the doctor said, um, and, and I know this is for a fact, because there's always this beauty in every single day, no matter how how wretched your, you know, your physical condition is, how, how degenerated your body is. You know, there's always something in every single hour of every single day. And he says that there's people with, you know, who, who they seem to have um, stabilized, but they've stabilized in a complete bodily paralysis. And they can only, you know, communicate through, you know, um, uh, you know eyeball-driven computer you know, programs, et cetera. But yet they run corporations, they have full lives, they're married, they have children, they, you know, they function. So I got to figure out how far I want to go with this. You know, what is, 
you know, what, what, what works, what works. I'll never make a decision for the sake of bravery or cowardice or it'll always just be how long it interests, how long, you know, what's interesting, what is an alluring choice. And um, uh, that seemed to open itself up. So there's now talk about um, uh, moving back to New York City. Cherry's very much into moving back to New York because out here in Bali, I could literally, um, if I get a cough with certain mucus or God forbid um, uh, COVID, you know, my, 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 my lungs are um, uh, 50% or more paralyzed. I could go easy. Mm. And there's no, um, there's nothing up here. You know, I'm taking a big chance being out here. I don't have any kind of, there's no plan B when you're all the way out here. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, there is some talk about going back to New York when thing, you know, and, and, and riding this new train out, you know, um, maybe blinking into computers, you know, showing with Larry and do, doing something. But one thing I'm very, very um, aware of and um, vocal about is I do not want to be seen. I, I do understand that if I'm showing with a gallery like Gagosian, and I'm this guy who's got ALS and can't move and I'm making work by blinking into computers, it would get every goddamn press, you know, I'm a press organ in the world wanting to jump on it and I would get an awful lot of attention for it and I'm not interested in that at all. I want to be known for the work I, I do, the work I'm doing now, the work I have planned in my head. I do not want to be known as somebody who makes work because of, you know, I want to be known as somebody who makes work in spite of the fucking disease, not because, not, not, not as. So, um, uh, so it remains to be seen how far I ride this beast out and it is a beast. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's put it this way. And I'll maybe I'll end on this note. When I was healthy and I would always find some way to be miserable. I'd always find something to bitch about. And now when you're like this, in the condition I'm in, it's the opposite. You always find something to be happy about. You always find something to, that's joyous or beautiful something to focus on. So that's the difference, I guess. Yeah, maybe that's the duality we've been talking about, the two ideas at once. Well, thank you, Ashley. Uh, I, I'm sure I can speak for many others that I hope you, you find a way to make work that makes sense to you and feels good for you. And if you do end up in New York, I'd love to see you in person. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for participating, participating in this project, Ashley. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, really. It's been a lovely, lovely to chat. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.